This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. Hello, and welcome to a special mini-episode of Cape Fear Unearth, a podcast from Star News Media. I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter for the Star News here in Wilmington, North Carolina. Now, for those of you who listen to the podcast regularly, you'll know that we are actually in between seasons. But I'm filtering into your podcast feeds today to get you up to speed on one of the region's biggest annual events, the North Carolina Azalea Festival. If you live in Wilmington, or even just visit on occasion, you probably know about the Azalea Festival. The annual springtime festival, which runs April 3rd through 7th this year, is the picture of Southern elegance and tradition, a visual feast of colors and fashion that has come to define the Cape Fear region and the state for the last 70 years. But do you know how the festival started and how it's evolved over the decades? Well, in advance of this year's 72nd annual festival, I've got you covered. So grab a colorful hoop skirt or a snazzy bow tie and settle in for this special episode of Cape Fear Unearthed as we uncover the blossoming history of the North Carolina Azalea Festival. The Cape Fear region has never been lacking in natural beauty. The inviting calm of the Cape Fear River the attractive allure of the ocean, and everything in between. There's a reason people want to call southeastern North Carolina home. But it's the protection and display of the region's gardens and flora that actually inspired the creation of one of its longest-lasting and defining traditions. In her book, Bells and Blooms, local historian Susan Taylor Block notes that while the region already had plenty of plants to call its own, more were brought over by settlers as they began moving into the area. Governor Arthur Dobb brought seeds from Europe to plant at his home in Brunswick Town in the 1750s, and John Bergwin maintained and curated a renowned garden at his home in Castle Hayne. Soon, everyday residents would start to create their own gardens in downtown Wilmington and beyond as the settlement expanded. These manicured gardens were spectacles and sources of pride for the region. Not only did it offer sun, sand, and a port essential for trade and travel, it was also a beautiful place to behold. It's in these early years of the region that the now signature Airlie Gardens was coming together piece by piece. After years of deals and efforts to protect the land as the population in the region grew, Sarah and Pembroke Jones purchased Sunset Park at the current site of Airlie in 1884 and would build a massive 39-room mansion before the end of the century. Sarah would go on to start transforming the land into a garden estate with trees, paths, and lakes. According to Airlie's written history, the gardens then began to take it from there, developing in a, quote, naturally curving and mysterious style. At the turn of the century, azaleas were introduced into the garden landscape, and by 1931, 
Sarah had hosted Airlie's first garden tour, attracting 2,500 admirers from numerous states. Airlie was sold to the Corbett Package Company for $150,000 in 1948, a year that would prove important to the incoming Azalea Festival. Airlie is an important facet of the Azalea Festival story because it's places like that and the privately owned Orton Plantation that the mission of the festival sought to protect and promote. In 1934, Dr. Houston Moore needed some help in bringing his vision to transform the swampy Greenfield Lake into a destination park. If you recall from our Topsy the Elephant episode, it was in the murky waters of Greenfield Lake that she got caught in the reeds and overgrown brush in 1922. Moore called upon several local clubs, led by the Wilmington Rotary Club, to begin the work to bring out the lake's better aspects including the planting of azaleas, some of which local residents pulled from the soil in their own yards to plant around the lake. The project took nearly a decade before the blooms of their efforts began to blossom. But once they did, Moore almost immediately wanted to show it off with a festival. Years before Moore's movement, local women had created the Cape Fear Garden Club in 1925, a literary gathering that changed its purpose when the members decided their time was better spent on the topic of best gardening practices. One fascinating note in Block's book on the history of the festival and the club is the detail that the women wanted to make a statement with their organization. So they procured a branch from the legendary old dram tree, still standing at the time and carved from it a gavel to call their meetings to order. The group, which became influential in the community, were among the first to spotlight the natural beauty of the area, helping with the various revitalization efforts at Greenfield Lake, and also ushering in several local festivals with the launch of their flower show in 1933. By 1947, Greenfield Lake was thriving, as more dreamed it would with workers planting some 175 flowers and plants in the years after World War II. So Moore once again convened representatives from local clubs and organizations to gauge the possibility of launching an annual festival that would promote the beauty of the lake and the region. He picked the start of April as the perfect time for the festival, because it was around the time that the local azaleas would begin blooming. Hugh Morton, the first president of the festival, was actually absent from the second meeting when he was elected to the position, an appointment he initially resigned from, but ultimately chose to accept, according to a letter he sent the festival organizers years later. Airely, Orton, and the Garden Club were among the 36 founding bodies of the Azalea Festival. At 11.30 a.m. on April 9, 1948, the first Azalea Festival kicked off with the Garden Club's Flower Show, broadcast live on ABC Radio News, and said to have been heard by 10 million people. The first Queen Azalea was Jacqueline White, an actress with RKO Pictures. Her coronation ball was held at Lumina Pavilion in Wrightsville Beach. 
Morton, a famous photographer, took a picture of White while she was in town, sitting under the grand Airly Oak Tree at Airly Gardens. And the picture has since become iconic of that time and of the first festival. In Bells and Blooms, Block recounts the story of White's coronation, which didn't go as planned. North Carolina governor at the time, R. Greg Cherry, was to crown the first queen, but he did so after a day of socializing and drinking. As Cherry took the stage, he seemed a bit wobbly, and when he went to formally crown White, he placed the crown upside down on her head. Other events in the first festival included a song contest at Legion Stadium and a barbecue at Orton Plantation. In total, the festival raised $5,000 and is said to have been attended by 60,000 guests. The second Azalea Festival swelled in size. Sporting events like the Azalea Open Invitational Golf Tournament, as well as a teenage ball, an 800-voice choir concert, and a street dance were all added to the schedule. In 1952, Morton recalled that Janet Lee. Alfred Hitchcock's muse and star of Psycho, was supposed to be Queen Azalea, but her husband, Tony Curtis, said no. In 1953, the Cape Fear Garden Club launched its tours of private gardens, the first lineup of which included the Bellamy Mansion. The tours were a huge success, bringing in $600, so the club voted to make it an annual event that still happens today. The 1955 festival was all but canceled after a spring freeze petrified and wilted the azaleas. But people still showed up, and the Garden Club promoted their selected gardens. In 1957, famed golfer Arnold Palmer participated in and won the Azalea Open. Esther Williams, the actress famous for her swimming routines on screen, served as the reigning queen of the 1958 festival and was crowned by a young Andy Griffith. Future President Ronald Reagan visited the 1959 festival as a representative of General Electric and acting as the festival MC. The festival had become a staple of the area by the 1960s. The Cape Fear Garden Club was bringing in substantial money that was used for beautification projects across the city. In the wildly transformative year of 1969, the festival closed out the decade with a new tradition that would become a defining program for the event. Prior to this year, teenage girls draped in big hoop skirts of a past era were seen around the gardens and festival. But it wasn't until 1969 that the eye-catching dresses and the youthful smiling faces in them were officially made part of the festival as the Azalea Bells. If it's any indication of the time and tradition the dresses were intended to evoke, this first group of bells wore hoop skirts previously worn by their mothers at the Cape Fear Confederate Ball in 1962. In the 1970s, the festival queens started being pulled from television, a growing medium at the time, and many of the actresses came from soap operas, like All My Children in As the World Turns. By 1979, 
The festival was 30 years old and serving a purpose and an audience far greater than its founders likely ever dreamed. According to Block, the festival was hosting guests from 83 North Carolina cities, 30 states, and four foreign countries. Michael Jordan, then a freshman at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, returned to Wilmington where he had gone to Laney High School and helped Hugh Morton crown the 1983 queen. Happy Days's Linda Goodfriend. Music was also becoming central to the festival by the 1980s. In the coming years, Andy Williams, Johnny Mathis, Donnie and Marie Osmond, Wayne Newton, Tom Jones, Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons, and Frank Sinatra would all perform. Comedians drew a crowd, too. Bob Hope did a two-show performance in Trask Auditorium at the University of North Carolina Wilmington for the 1981 festival. Bill Cosby, still just a beloved TV dad, performed in front of 6,000 people at Trask in 1991. Kelly Ripa, perhaps one of the festival's most recognizable queens, wore the crown in 1993. And as the area's film industry grew, the festival began plucking celebrities from local productions. Dawson's Creek actress Nina Rapetta was Queen Azalea in 2000, and One Tree Hill's Barbara Allen Woods held the same title eight years later. Her One Tree Hill co-stars Chad Michael Murray and Hilary Burton also made appearances at the festival. Today, the North Carolina Azalea Festival, as it's now called, is a beacon of the state and the annual production of more than 1,000 volunteers. Recent festivals have been attended by more than 300,000 people, flocking to big-ticket concerts, a two-day street fair full of crafts, food, and performances, and plenty of events dripping in Southern elegance. The spirit of that original mission, to highlight the preservation of this area's gardens, is still central to the festival. The Garden Party at Airly Gardens is a signature exclusive event that invites women to pull out their fanciest fascinators and men to wear springtime pastels and seersucker. And the home tour continues to allow guests into the immaculate homes in the historic downtown district. Today, when the Azalea Queen travels around town, she has an entourage of her court and a police escort of more than a dozen police officers stopping traffic so she can be whisked to her various destinations unimpeded. Thousands of people crowd the concerts that now put a period on each of the three main days of the festival. For locals, it's something to take part in as a sense of pride in their town, though some choose to avoid the madness of the weekend at alternative concerts and events. With 70-plus years of evolution, the North Carolina Azalea Festival is a beast far beyond the dream Houston Moore sought to chase in the 1940s. It's a tradition that has come to define the port city for the world beyond its borders. If you need proof, just take a drive to the city limits, where highway signs welcome travelers to Wilmington, the home of the North Carolina Azalea Festival. That's it. 
for this special episode on the legacy of the North Carolina Azalea Festival. Thank you so much for joining me. Right now, I'm hard at work on season three of the podcast, which is going to premiere early this summer. And until then, we're going to have one more special episode coming out in a few weeks that you won't want to miss if you're a fan of the local film industry. And in this offseason, be sure to share your thoughts on the show on Twitter with the hashtag CFUnearthed, or you can email me at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. Send me your suggestions for what you want to see covered on the podcast in the future. I'm always looking for new ideas. Also, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories about this region's history. In that group, I'm always posting extra content for the episodes, and in the off-season, I'm posting updates about when the podcast will be coming back. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. As always, you can find a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com and on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing is done by Adam Fish at Gatehouse Media. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you stream the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear on Earth. Until next time, get out and enjoy the North Carolina Azalea Festival and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. What you learn might just surprise you. going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.